Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. I'm joining us, Bob Sager. Legend does not really state or it, it does not pontificate the true meaning of this man sitting right here. Bob, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. I'm feeling good at my age, which is, I'll be 94 in about a week. I know I saw that you got a birthday coming up on January 26th, man. What is that like? We'll get into your career in just a second, but we can only hope to be 94, 95, 96. Some of us will hit triple digits, man. But what does it feel like for you? I mean, is it is it weird? Is it interesting? Or how do you feel on a day-to-day basis, Bob? I feel I'm feeling health-wise, I'm feeling very good mm-hmm. and happy. Uh, you know, I'm still active. Um with doing things, I mean, just to, there's a mouse con coming up mm-hmm. in uh, the end of this month in Bakersfield, California. So I'll be over there um, spending the day and meeting people. That'll be fun. Yeah, I can only imagine. So what do you do for fun now? At ni- almost 94 years old, what's Bob you know, doing to keep himself active? I get my fun from the computer uh-huh. and from meeting people like you. Mm-hmm. And I get some fan mail from people too. And uh, some people requesting autographs or drawings. And uh, I enjoy the contact with fans. It's great. Are you still doing commissions and everything? Not really. I'm, I'm, uh, I'll draw ahead of some of character, but I don't want to do any large pictures anymore. Gotcha. I, I donated my, all my books mm-hmm. to uh, Merced College. I think I gave them 105 books. Wow. Art books. Yeah. Because I don't have room where I am now to store them. So I donated them to the studio, um, the university. That's mighty nice, man. Uh, like I said, if I know some some artists are doing commissions and some aren't. So if we can ever get you some work and we can send some fans your ways and you want to make a little bit of extra money, uh, we'll, 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 we'll make sure we cross that bridge when it comes, Bob. But okay, kind, sure. of buried, kind of buried the lead a little bit, man. Like I said, uh, you know, I, in my opinion, the term legend gets thrown around, but that, that term specifically, it, it fits for you. I mean, if we can just go off of some of the shows from – the original Scooby-Doo in 1969. Then you had the Flintstones. Then you had the Smurfs. You had the Jetsons. And I won't be able to, to mention everything you've worked on because, like I said, it's when did you get into this animation industry? We'll start there, and then we'll just see where it takes us. It was 1956 mm-hmm. when a friend of mine who was an art school friend was working at Seamus Culhane Studios in Hollywood. And uh, he called me up, and he said, Bob, get over here with your portfolio. So I did rush, rush over with my art school portfolio. And uh, the art director, Bill Hertz, was looking through it. And he was sort of bored, I think, with my work, mm-hmm. uh, life drawings and illustration and nothing uh, with cartoons, except in the end, if, before I finished loading it up, I put in three or four drawings of cartoon characters doing things 
like animals acting on people and and uh, a lion tamer and, and they're all cartoon drawings. And Bill Hertz said, this guy has talent. So he hired me to do background painting. Isn't that amazing that in those days there was no art schools around where it taught animation. You had to learn on the job. So he felt that he could teach me and he did. I was uh, assisting a friend of mine. He showed me the ropes and I learned how to do background painting. So what was it like breaking into the industry? You're coming from, you said realistic, you weren't doing too many cartoony stuff and as far as your portfolio goes. And then this guy, he sees something in you and you're doing backgrounds. What is that first couple months or first couple years like transitioning? Well, you know, I was a cartoonist like most kids until I went to art school and they stopped. They said, no, no cartooning. We're just going to teach illustration and figure drawing. And, and uh, so for several years, I forgot all about cartooning. Mm -hmm. But when I was thrown into animation, all of a sudden I was in the field and not knowing anything about it. And uh, luckily, whatever person would say to me, well, we need a storyboard, can you do one? And I said, sure, but you know, I never had never done one before. So my friend gave me the, the paper, correct paper, and talked to me about long shot, close up, and uh, medium shot and all that stuff, mm -hmm. and where to put the dialogue. So I did the job and, I, and it was successful. But that's the story of uh, my career. Whenever somebody said, can you do this? I said, sure. Then I'd find out how to do it. <laughs> you always say yes, you never say no. Right, you always say yes and uh, work it out. So uh, that's, that's how I learned by uh, doing. That's Being fantastic. told to do something and then I found out how to do it and I did it. That's fantastic. And like I said, there's no real structure to these podcasts. So we will jump over or jump to and from, you know, different eras, just so we can kind of touch on a little bit of everything. And like I said, um, if you want to come back on down the road, we have no problem getting in and we go a little bit depth into, into specific details. But one, when we were talking offline uh, a couple of days ago, there was one topic I told you that I would love to hit on. And UPA was one of those. I've never had anybody that worked with or for UPA. And it's one of my favorite studios of all time. I mean, from the color palettes that they would choose, their distinct style. I mean, them and Jay Ward, when I think of cartoons and animation specifically, those two stick out because they weren't the the traditional, they're not, I don't want to say traditional. They weren't the, the MGM, the Warner Brothers. They weren't the, the Hanna-Barbera. They had their own style. They had their own color. They had their own flow. And I would just love to know anything and everything that you could possibly, you know, remember about UPA and working there. So what was working at UPA like? When I was at uh, Warner Brothers, I went to UPA when they had an open house because they were trotting out Jared with one boy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did visit the studio and see uh, that uh, open house. But I, uh, when I finally uh, quit Warner's and went to UPA, it was not the same old UPA that you're talking about. It was the new one when Henry J. Soperstein bought the studio. And he was producing not theatrical cartoons, but a Mr. Magoo for TV mm -hmm. and Dick Tracy and Jiu-Jitsu and... And then we got into to, uh, features, 
such as uh, Gay Paris and uh, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol and the famous adventures of Mr. Magoo. So um, I went from Warner's to uh, UPA without knowing anything about layout. So again, I had to ask my buddy who was there, how do you do layout? Yeah. Because <laughs> I had just gotten a job as a layout man. <laughs> he showed me the few tricks. And after two and a half weeks, when he supervised me, he said, Bob, you're on your own. You can do it now. So I learned how to do layouts in two and a half weeks. And um, then I um, found an animator who was very friendly. And I would go to him with my drawings and say, what do you think? Is this what you need? And he gave me advice. And that's how I learned again, just by doing it or getting the job and then doing it. Do you remember what years that was when you started and then when you left UPA? 1960. 1960 is when you started? That's when I started. I quit Warner's, having been there almost three years. Mm -hmm. I was a, a background painter working on Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny and Foghorn Leghorn. Mm -hmm. But my friend, because my friend said, Bob, come over here. You can earn more money. And I think that's what drew me in. A new challenge and a little more money. And that got me to quit Warner's. It turned out the Warner's years were the best years of my career, I think. I just yep. love working there. Why, why, do you, why do you think they were the best years of your career? I was learning how to paint backgrounds uh, their way. And uh, Bob Gerbrock, who was working for Bob McKimson as a painter, taught me his theory of color, mm -hmm. which uh, really was an eye-opener. Uh, I'll give you one little hint. I was wondering why all of his backgrounds were so beautiful, how they fit, every, all the colors fit together. He told me a secret. Every single color he put in, he put a drop of orange in. Really? And that, that made everything work together very well because they all had a similar base. Mm -hmm. So even if it was blue, just a touch of orange, maybe a drop in the blue color. And that color along with all the other colors, were just wonderful together. That's, that's amazing. Uh, now, I use, like I said, I usually wait until the very end to uh, ask you the fans questions. However, somebody specifically, and Devin, uh, Devin's that person, he, you brought up Bob McKimson, and then he wanted to know, would love to know more of your time at Warner Brothers and working backgrounds in Bob McKimson's unit. Now, you just told us with the drop of orange, that's how everything tied in, that's how everything looks so beautiful, and everything looked like it meant to be there. There was nothing out of place. Um, we talked about the paints, but you got any fun Mr. McKimson stories? I'm, I've never gotten the chance to, to, to ask that question, but I got to imagine working in his unit for backgrounds. You got to have some, some pretty cool stories. Well, I never been, I was sorry. I never met Bob McKimson, even though I was working there in his unit. And they put me together in a room with another guy who was designing uh, layouts and doing characters. And uh, I didn't realize that I was working with Bob Gibbons. Oh, wow. for, for several years, he and I shared a room. He would smoke his pipe and I would do my drawings. And we would put on Frank Sinatra movie uh, records. All day we'd play Frank Sinatra. And uh, we didn't talk much because he was busy and I was busy, but 
I realized later, wow, this is some character I'm with. He's a very famous guy, mm-hmm. beautiful character designer. I mean, he he kicked off the Bugs Bunny uh, character, who was later refined by Bob and Kimson, I think, and several people, Chuck Jones, and Frizz all used Bugs, but the final Bugs Bunny was designed by Bob Kimson, mm-hmm. Modest Seats. There's one model sheet by Gene McCurdy who did the earlier bugs, probably the one that Bob Givens had designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we used to, we had, the studio was on the, just outside of the Warner Brothers lot. Mm-hmm. So we, to, we would jump the fence there in the back lot and go and have lunch in the commissary. <laughs> the cowboys and the... Uh, other people who worked there. Yeah. That was fun. I enjoyed the big studio experience. Thank you for sharing. I really, I really appreciate that. Um, so there you go, Devin. There's a little bit of peek behind the curtains. So you're going from UPA, or you're coming from, you said Warner Brothers, and then you went to UPA. And then when does Charlotte's Web come into play you were the art director for that one and that's one of my favorite movies as um, i should have uh, clarified that that was done over at uh, hannah barbera uh charlotte's web yeah okay. but uh bits and Bagoose, christmas carol mm-hmm. and gay pre were done at upa yes okay and then so with that being said when do you leave upa what year do you leave upa again 1960 to 65 65 is when you're 60. actually 64 64. And then after UPA, you're going over to Hanna-Barbera? Well, yes, but there was a detour. Mm-hmm. Uh, after uh, UPA closed its doors and me and Art Babbitt were the only two people left, we were doing commercials. Um, then I went over to uh, Chuck Jones Tower 12 mm-hmm. and I was hired. And it soon uh, occurred to me that I was hired only as an assistant background uh, layout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so I wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like I was happy there because of that. I wanted to be a full fledged layout man. After all my, uh, my experience. And uh, so I left after two and a half weeks. But, but I, Chuck Jones would have a meeting of all the staff occasionally, or we would go into a theater nearby and we'd see the latest finished cartoon that he had done. And, uh, Chuck was just a, fa- a wonderful speaker. Mm-hmm. Everyone loved him. It was fascinating to hear him talk. So I was always glad to have been there for that. But that's when I went to Anna Barbera. I quit uh, that Tower 12 is where his name of his company was. So I went over to Hanna-Barbera. And when I got there, I found that was a busy beehive of people working on Johnny Quest. Yes, that's another classic. I love that cartoon yeah. graphic. That's right. Now They had brought in a lot of uh, New York illustrators to handle the drawings because, you know, we were just for the cartoonists do the funny stuff. We didn't know how to draw this uh, other kind of realistic drawing like Johnny Quest required. So um, they put me into the uh, background department. I painted backgrounds on the Quest uh, for about three months. 
and then then it was over. It was ended. Well, they, they only made twenty six pictures of Johnny Quest, one season's worth, and uh, they didn't follow it up because it was too expensive. They thought they would uh, never recover the cost, but I don't think they realized how successful it would be. They would run for years, and. Uh, so we were left with uh, still going back to the funny stuff like hillbilly hairs, uh, hillbilly bears, and a few other uh, funny stuff. Yogi uh, Yogi Bear, and um, then we got um, orders to do um, another realistic show, um, um, Space Ghost and Dino Boy. Yes, yeah. They were both in the same show. I was. They would show uh, one Space Ghost and one Dino Boy, mm. and uh, all of a sudden we were, had to do the illustrious stuff again. And uh, this time we didn't have these New York artists. They were all either went back to New York or they were went to other studios. We didn't keep them, so uh, I had to learn. Remember my art school days of painting the human figure again, and I I found some comic Tarzan comic books, and I took them home and I copied them, so I could sort of get my mind around drawing full figures again. Mm -hmm. That helped me, I think. So, what was the? I know you said the the mindset for bringing in uh, the New York artists were because they were more dabbled and they were realistic. Um, did they stick around or come back when you guys started doing things like Scooby-Doo or was that strictly? No, no they were gone. They were gone again. They went to other studios or went back to New York where they did their comic books. Okay. So, um, you know, every year I was there 27 years, but every year when there was a big layoff and then we had to rehire the staff again mm -hmm. when the production started. So, it was, but there were about six or seven of us that were a nucleus that weren't laid off. And because they had to do design new shows for the next season. So we were doing presentation of new shows, doing the artwork for it. They have a uh, archives in some building somewhere. All the drawings remain for these new shows that didn't sell. Mm -hmm. It's all stacked away somewhere. I wish they would have an exhibit of that. I really wish they would because there's so many. I've, I, I live out on the East Coast. I'm out in Florida. And uh, we don't have very, um, you know, I talked to Jerry Beck uh, a couple days ago because he had posted, hey, we're going to do an animation exhibit for um, somewhere in North Carolina here in the next couple weeks. And I was like, any chance that it's going to be anywhere in Florida? Because I would love to go to an animation exhibit. He's like, well, hell, we just did one, you know, a couple years ago. I think he said before COVID. I'm like, damn it. I wish I would have known ahead of time or seen this because I've, I've always wanted to go to these. Because every time I get to talk to you guys, you guys tell me about just the folders and folders and folders of stuff that people have collected and stored over the years. And with Warner Brothers, they got an archive and it's sitting in a warehouse collecting dust for none of the fans to really see or none of the, the guys and gals that are still around that can appreciate that hard work that they did so many years ago that just got shelved because either no money, they didn't think it was selling or you know what have you so i would really love to see you know an animation exhibit just of the stuff that probably didn't get made i think there's a i think there's a market for it and i think there's a, a um, an exhibit of fans who would especially like myself would love to see 
it's well, they're owned by Warner Brothers now, so they're the people to approach if you want to do that. All right. Well, I'm gonna have to sit here and make a little note. Maybe I can get in contact with one of them. We can we can do something in Florida. Fly old Bob Sanger out to Florida. You ever been to Florida, Bob? Yes, I went to Disney World. Yeah, that's the only and, thing we really uh, got here. <laughs> really, uh, I was a little uncomfortable because everywhere I've lived in California was between mountains yeah. or a mountain in the background, but the, in Florida is flat. Yes. There's nothing there. No, not even a hill. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a there's a hill at the end of my uh, at the end of my driveway. But I've been I was in the Navy for about seven years. So I was stationed in Washington State and in San Diego. Um, I've never seen driving through L.A. Right. So when we planned the trip to go to pack all of our stuff up from Washington State, when we got stationed in San Diego, I planned the trip where we were going through L.A. at like two, three o'clock in the morning because I figured there's no traffic. But when we were going through LA, it was during the Lakers were making a run for the uh, postseason, so they were in the playoffs. I did not realize that it take three and a half hours, almost four hours, to go 1.3 miles on that interstate. Oh, wow. was, yes, I've never seen traffic like that in my life since or before then. However, the Mexican food in, in Southern California was amazing. The weather amazing like one week a year it got into the triple digits there was no mosquitoes which was fantastic coming from florida that's all we've got heat and skeeters and sharks um so i really enjoyed living out in uh, southern california for a while but when you get out here you're right there's <laughs> there's no scenic views i mean we got some trees and shit but we you know there's no mountains there's no lakes there's no snow so that's why the movie industry moved from new york to california way back in the 20s because of the weather Mm. Oh, so many sunny days, and many of the studios had no tops. They they shot out out in the open. They had plenty of sun. It was great. Yeah, I can only imagine. So jumping a little forward here, man. Uh, like like I told you earlier, I am such a. I've got them around here somewhere. I might have actually just put them back. I don't know where he's at, but uh, it's neither here nor there. Um, I was a huge fan of uh, old Scooby Doo and the gang. When do you guys get approached to start making this? Or when do you start hearing about Scooby-Doo? Where are you? Well, um, Scooby-Doo, all of the characters were designed by Igor Takamoto. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't let anybody else draw them. He did all of the model sheets, which were extensive. Like Scooby himself must have had six or seven pages of poses. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but well, I did help on one part. They brought me a drawing of the mystery machine and said, Bob, we want you to decorate this. You know, <laughs> put some color on stuff. Well, this is what's happening around town now is a lot of flower children. Yeah. And uh, so I, did, I, I put some nice lines and I put some uh, flowers on the front and on the sides. And the words, the mystery machine were on the side of the truck. And I put them all together in a block so they could be colored with one color. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if they were separated, they have to paint each letter? Yeah. So I put it together so it's just one color of the whole thing. Anyway, uh, that was my contribution to the series. Of course, I was running layouts on Scooby 
at the time, and I uh, was in, I'm in charge of getting some of these uh, monster characters designed. So we used Alex Toth for that. He was a freelancer. And we had some people on staff who could do it, but not very many. I did a few. I did the Tar Man and the Minor 49er and the Electric Monster. And uh, that was the interesting one. I, I could. I went to a uh, electric. Uh, uh, I tried to get reference for uh, what kind of uh, devices I could turn into a character. Mm-hmm. So I went to, to a power company in um, North Hollywood, and I looked at all the uh, different machines and stuff, and I, I had no ideas of what to do. So what I did finally do was uh, just drawing a monster like this, you know, and uh, I asked the can paint people to use a different technique using uh, shooting on ones, but using a texture over the paint or around the paint. If you shoot on ones, you'll know it'll flicker like this. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We just used a very simple character with, with the overlay of uh, sponge, uh, on the cell, must have been difficult for the cell people to do that to paint, but it worked. Yeah. Now, were I know some people do and then some people don't. But would you watch the shows when they were coming out on TV, or would you not watch the shows you worked on? Oh, you always did. Yeah, because they, they would show them in the uh, studio theater. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit that when this when they we got so busy, we had to send a lot of the Scooby stuff overseas to be animated and laid out. When they came back, there were a lot of mistakes and bad animation, but the time was all gone. The deadlines were so close, we had to just put them on the screen. And I was embarrassed, I'm afraid, uh, to see a lot of bad animation. Yeah. Uh, there was one with uh, Cher and... Uh, Sonny Bono. Yeah, Sonny Bono and Cher were guest stars on the Scooby. And the animation was so bad, I, I just couldn't watch it. Um, in fact, there's a uh, website called Scooby Do Mistakes. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> no, but I'm going to write it down and look it up right after we get off just this. <laughs> type in Scooby Do Mistakes and you'll come in with this website and they just show all these badly animated scenes mm-hmm. and they make jokes out of them. <laughs> anyway, well, I don't mind. Mind. You know, that's what is, what was, was. We, we just had to live with it. Yeah, I mean, there that's, is- what, that's what happens when you get too much work and there's no time to correct things. What are you going to do? How crazy was this show during the process of making the show. I mean, I got to imagine that I don't want to say you guys weren't getting these numbers because you guys had had Flintstones, you know, a little while before. And that was the biggest animated sitcom of all time up until I believe the Simpsons, you know, it's, it's depends on, on what you look at as far as um, fan tuning and people watching and all that other stuff. But the Flintstones were the biggest thing since sliced bread. Um, And then you guys get another hit with Scooby-Doo and I got to imagine the the production time and for both of those shows was hectic. 
Uh, do you remember anything? Because we got a few questions about production and then how long it would take from script to seeing it on uh, on TV. But do you remember anything about about those production schedules when it was coming? Well, to I'll tell you. When I was uh, before I went to Animal Bear, I <clears throat> I heard that they were a sweatshop. Mm -hmm. be careful. You go there, you'll be under intense pressure. But when I got there, begin to work, I, I just loved the pressure and the fast pace. And we had three units working, three pictures at a time on Scooby. And maybe there were two animators. We had to split it up there was to, get, to get it work done on time. Put on two or three layout men on the same picture. And uh, we were asking them to do at least six scenes a day of layout. That would be minimum that I was, I set myself the uh, example of doing uh, more than that. I did, I, was, I think, 13 scenes a day on Scooby because I was laying out as well as supervising. Mm -hmm. And uh, I enjoyed the intense pressure because I found ways to cope with it. And it, it's sort of exciting to, to work that fast and get it done and have it look good. So I didn't mind it at all. Did you have uh, any favorite episodes from that original run? Maybe some you worked on and then some you probably had your friends work on. You remember? Well, I think the first one, the first Scooby, we were setting the style. Mm -hmm. And uh, I drew a lot of the backgrounds on the first one um, because the storyboard was done by Howard Swift, mm -hmm. a freelancer. He was doing a lot of board work for us, but everything he put on the board was very minimal. He didn't give it any hint as to style. So I thought about the fact that Scooby is not cartoony is, or not realistic like Johnny Quest. It's sort of in the middle. Mm -hmm. I call it comedy adventure style. Yeah. So I, that's the way I approached the backgrounds on Scooby. And that became the style pretty much of the show. Now with the backgrounds, so when I was when I was doing a more in-depth uh, you know read of what you've done throughout your entire career, I mean we've talked backgrounds, we've talked painting, we've talked uh, character design and character work. What do you feel uh, spoke to you the most out of all of the facets that you can be as an animator? Was there one specific that you you absolutely enjoyed doing more than the other? I just loved uh, drawing scenes with characters in the background. Because um, <clears throat> I'll tell you a story. On uh, Space Ghost, um, we, it was very slow. Uh, Alex Toth had just quit uh, for some reason. I never found out what, why he had some sort of difference or whatever. And um, so when I got the assignment to do layouts and to head the layouts in Space Coast, and I uh, took a, um, Alex to lunch and I begged him to, we need you. I said, we just can't do this without you. He said, okay. <laughs> he, and he went home and every week we sent him a script and he would send us all the characters, not only the characters, <clears throat> the vehicles and do even some backgrounds. Mm -hmm. He would do the whole show in a week and send it to us and we put it into production. Of course, we couldn't use his exact drawings yeah. because he was putting a lot of black 
on the characters. And we, in those days, we weren't using black areas. That's another story. Well, a quick story is when Doug Wiley did Godzilla and he came in, he used a lot of black in his characters in the backgrounds and the studio finally relented and said, okay, do it. But in those days, we couldn't use it. So we would have to redraw his characters so they would go through animation with no problems. What were what were the problems? Uh, just being just being uh, the guy on the outside looking in, um, would it just be more difficult to animate with a bunch of black backgrounds and stuff like that? Or no, well, the black was mostly on the characters. Okay. And uh, so we we had to reduce them to line drawings without the black. Gotcha. And I think uh, probably Alex wasn't too happy with that, but I think he understood. Yeah. Um, so. Um, then they, uh, Bill Hanna called a meeting of the layout crew and uh, three or four of us went in and Bill said, what's wrong? We're, we're behind deadline on this. Can anybody tell me how we can speed this up? Mm-hmm. And I put my hand up like this. And so, Bob, we have an idea. I said, yeah, there are too many backgrounds. <laughs> you know, there are 19, I said, there are 19 backgrounds in this and you could do it in nine backgrounds. And uh, then the meeting closed and uh, Ewell came over to me and said, Bob, we're gonna put you in charge of the layouts. And so I devised, I I took my, uh, I made an invention of background charts. Mm -hmm. So when I got a, a storyboard, before I would do the layout, I would plot the whole picture, how many backgrounds I need and what scenes go on what background. I called it a background chart. And uh, other people picked it up and began to use that system. And it did save a lot of time. And we did get on back on schedule. A couple years later, somebody came to me from Canada for a job. And he said, you know, I have this background chart that I use. It's terrific. And I said, yeah, I invented it. <laughs> anyway. Did he at least ask so you to we did get back on schedule, so it worked out. And also, I instituted a uh, a new way to draw sky backgrounds. By that, before every sky background, whether it was a tilt or a vertical or a pan this way, had to have a new background. I invented what you call a non-directional sky background, where the clouds were sort of circular. The cars are circular. You can do a, a vertical tilt or a, a tilt like this way or straight on, and it worked. Mm-hmm. So we, we cut down the number of sky backgrounds that way. That saved the background painting department problems too. And then I instituted a system of saving backgrounds and <clears throat> keep numbering them to make a stock animation system with not only backgrounds, but later on, characters, cops, housewives, bad guys. So if a layout man had to uh, dream up, instead of drawing a new character, which was the layout's problem was to do the incidental characters, Mm -hmm. uh, they could go to this library and find something and then change it slightly, new clothes, different hairstyle, and use another character again in another picture. So, 
I put in a lot of systems that way. Changing the game. Did that uh, Canadian artist, did he get you to sign your... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> did he even ask you to get your autographs? <laughs> we, were, we were doing six new shows a year, a year. And then all of a sudden we had 14 shows yeah. we sold. We oversold. So it's a good thing we had those uh, libraries because we sure used them. Yeah, it'll definitely help, you know, shave some time off of those deadlines. Yeah. Um, I know I told you we jumped around and I don't want to keep you, you know, too, too much longer. But did you have fun at least the first part of this? We've been going for about 40 minutes now. I figured we could rotate into some fans questions. Sure. And like I said, we can we can get you back on here for a part two if you're up for it, because uh, like I said, we've only scratched the surface, really. I mean, we jumped around a little bit here and there. Um, there, there, like I said, there was just no way of us possibly getting your entire career boiled down into 60 minutes. Right. So no, um, we can do it again. That's OK. Beautiful. I, I love to hear that, because like I said, I'm having I'm having a lot of fun with this. And some of these fans questions were, were very good. And I want to make sure I asked this one first. Um, but before we get to that, which one second, I got one more question before um, we, we talked. We talked about um, Bill and, and Joe here a few times, um, you know, the creators of Hanna-Barbera Studios. What was your initial meeting like them when you came to work with Hanna-Barbera? Did you get to meet with them before, you know, you uh, you signed on to work with that studios? Oh, yes, I met them occasionally when I had a problem. Mm -hmm. When I was uh, doing storyboards later, uh, Joe would look at all the storyboards. He would call us in and he would add bits of dialogue and um, change some actions. Mm -hmm. But Joe was, I always looked upon him as like a Cary Grant. He was very handsome, mm -hmm. dark skinned. But also that, he was a nice guy, a real gentleman. So different from Bill Hanna, who was yeah. more uh, backslapper. Mm -hmm. um, and he talked loud and he was strong, just the opposite of uh, Joe. Mm. But they made a great team. But they divided their work in half. Bill would do the uh, production from animation to camera. But Joe would do the creation of new shows through layout. And, and uh, so they kept themselves uh, in their own areas. I, I don't think there was always a lot of good relationship between them. Not all the time. That's, uh, that's sad. But, but Bill was very tough. And uh, Joe was pleasant. So... Uh, they were two different guys, but they worked together and did all these wonderful cartoons. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, they changed. I don't want to say they changed the game because before then, I mean, animation wasn't really too too far along when they when they started um, doing what they do. But they they've influenced and will continue to influence animators forever. You know, their their name and their stake in this this game that they call animation. I mean, they were. They were a part of those pillars. They were they were those pillars that propped up animation. I mean, without them, you know, we don't have fans like myself. I mean, we're probably into something else at this point. You know, animation isn't really a thing. Um, so without them, I mean, it looks the, the world kind of looks bleak. You know, it's not as fun. It's not as slapsticky. There's not you know a mouse and a cat running around. There's not a dog. You know, with a whole group of people chasing villains. You know, so it's it's definitely I've completely understated their their 
work and their importance in this industry, but it's kind of hard to articulate how important those two individuals were, as well as yourself and the many thousands of other animators that helped prop up those studios. So um, like I said, as we rotate into the fans' questions, this okay. hands down was my favorite question asked probably ever. And it's a hypothetical and it's a fun one. John wants to know, <laughs> Mr. Singer, who wins in a street fight? Mel Blank or Chuck Jones? This one made me laugh quite a bit. <laughs> Mel Blank, of course. Mel Blank, of course. There you go, John. Uh, I think Chuck would be above it all. Yeah. Mel Blank's okay to take it a little street level, huh? <laughs> he would say, let's talk it out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Mel Blank would give him a fist. Yeah, that's what I like to hear, man. Uh, Jesse wants to know. Uh, best advice you can give someone that is looking for freelance storyboard work. They, they want to make sure that they can get their work out there so they're not consistently having to submit their portfolio. So do you have any advice for a fellow storyboarder that's trying to get their work out there in prominent? Well, uh, do a good board and then just show it. That's all you need to show. If you can show you can do boards, that they'll hire you on the spot if they need you. Beautiful. Yeah, so do, do boards. Doesn't have to be a whole board, but to show that you can draw and you understand the mechanics and know something about storytelling. Beautiful. Um, but they would probably bring you on as a junior assistant under another board man, and he would give you work and uh, supervise your work, criticize it. And then after probably a number of weeks, when he thought you were okay, he would say, all right, this board is yours, go do it. Beautiful. And of course he would look at it, but he would be sort of shepherd you through the system. But that's the way that new people in the industry are always brought in. They're put under an experienced person who teaches them how to do it. Even if you've been in school studying it, you still have to go through that process of coming in as an apprentice, then an assistant, and then a journeyman. And also your pay would rise as you show that you could do the work. All right, so put the hours in and, and get out there and just really just put your head down and do what you do. Yeah, do uh, Nikki wants to know, what would you say was the highest point in terms of animation quality at Hanna-Barbera? Was there an era that was at the, at the peak? I would say it was uh, probably during the period just before I came with the Flintstones. Mm -hmm. They had a peak there. They were doing some wonderful cartoons. And they had great animators that were with them when they were at MGM doing Tom and Jerry's. The same crew, Bob Gentle and uh, some of the other animators went with Joe and Bill to, when they had their new studio. So they already had good, um, good talent on the staff. That's what you need, good talent. But you also need really good men like Bill and Joe who could new production and uh, and were, uh, Joe was such a talent. He always amazed me. He could draw beautifully as well as uh, um, decide what's a good property and what isn't. 
who was the better artist in your opinion, Joe or Bill? Well, Bill didn't draw. No? Bill did, Bill, uh, did timing mm -hmm. and he did the music. Not many people knew that he was a wonderful at, at composing music. The oh, themes, the Flintstones theme song, for instance, were was his uh, device, and uh, so that was his uh, expertise. And he did a lot of timing. Okay. Yeah. Man, I didn't I didn't realize that he did the music for that one. I mean, I'm, obviously his studio did it, but I didn't know he was the the big pro, uh, proponent behind that. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, man, my handwriting is horrible. Uh, Painted Dragonist wants to know, <clears throat> as someone who finds your model sheets very helpful, which, uh, which Hanna-Barbera character do you have the most fun drawing? For me, it's always been Huckleberry Hound. Well, I enjoyed drawing Scooby when I finally learned how to draw him. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, with all the model sheets, you sort of search the pages to find the pose you need until you learn how to draw him. He's very tough to draw. Scooby's not easy. It's sort of a half realistic dog, the way he moves too. I have a story there. He, Scooby was designed as a four-legged dog on his, um, he was not to be, meant to be a stand-up dog until one storyboard man did draw him on his hind legs. Mm -hmm. And they went through production and nobody noticed it. <laughs> and Finally, I, I, I found out about it. I went to uh, <clears throat> Bill Nichols, who was head of animation. And I said, we don't have any model sheets for a stand-up dog. He's never meant to be that way. But it was too late. It was already in production. So I had to uh, draw some a new, put out some new model sheets on a stand-up Scooby. So that everybody would draw it in the same way. <laughs> Anyway, I, um, when I draw now for people, I still I enjoy drawing a Pebbles or a Bam Bam mm -hmm. or a Scooby um, or a Flint, Fred Flintstone. Yeah. On my um, desk, I'm, I have a Jetson I'm just drawing this morning. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thank you for sending that. Um, John wants to know, do you have any cool Herb Spence stories? Well, you know, the animators worked separate mm -hmm. from us. They were like us on the second floor of the studio. We never had lunch with them. They always had, went out to lunch together. And uh, the layout men would go out to lunch together. So we never met with the animators. Uh, they had their own clique and so did we. Mm -hmm. So I never learned about Herb, only that I knew he was a wonderful animator. That's about it. Beautiful. Um... Zachary here, he's got a question about Charlotte's Web. Uh, did you ever get to meet Debbie Reynolds? And if so, what was she like? No. Um, the recording was done either over in Hollywood or it was done at night at the studios. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, I remember only one. I've only seen two characters um, in the studio. Like Jonathan Winters came once, and uh, I was head of layout at the time, and I noticed the layout department was empty. Nobody was there. So I went out to look for them, and they were all in the backyard 
I mean, the parking lot around Jonathan Winters, who was giving him all his funny routines, entertaining the troops. And the, the only other person I uh, saw was uh, Gene Kelly came because he did some work with us. Um, and he was in the uh, lobby. Um, and I just saw him as I walked by. Notice that he was really not a tall man. He was medium size and a little bit older at the time. But that's about it. We never really saw, I, at, at UPA, I was introduced to a wonderful um, movie star that I, I was so excited to see her that all I could do was grin at her. Judy Garland came to uh, meet all of the staff at UPA because we were doing gay parade. She did the voices. And she, she, they came to my room and introduced me to her. All I could do was shake her hand and grin. And she chuckled and moved on. <laughs> that was it. I got to imagine that was unreal just to be in the same room with that lady. I mean, I got to imagine it was pretty crazy. Well, I just love her work and, and her daughter's work, Liza. Um, we, we, so we talked about this during the first season. Uh, I don't know if, it, if you said it was the first season of Scooby-Doo, um, but we did talk about outsourcing. Um, but Alex wants to know, how did you feel about the outsourcing of animation? Well, I was against it because it came back pretty badly done. Yeah. But there was a um, one thing was good about it. Bill would send uh, Scooby-Doo's to Australia because mm -hmm. we had two guys down there who did beautiful work on Scooby and fast, faster than we did. And in fact, they brought the two of them to the US to show us what they did. And uh, that gave us an eye opener that uh, we better do our work and do it well because these guys are doing it very well. Do you remember their um, In Australia, but the work that was done overseas, <clears throat> there was a big strike in the industry against runaway production. They thought they were sending work away and taking work away from us. I didn't see it that way. The fact that we, um, because we soon we were doing 14 shows or 10 shows instead of six, it's a good thing we had the overseas capability because we could never have made the deadlines without it. So it enabled the studio to grow bigger and make more money, I guess but uh, do more shows, but at the cost of some uh, quality. Gotcha. Do you remember the two names of the uh, artists that you were talking about in Australia? I can't remember, no. Okay, that's, that's, that's okay. Um, the only reason I ask, <clears throat> excuse me, the only reason I ask is because I had a, um, and I know you were at Hanna-Barbera around the same time, so you might have met him, uh, but he worked with David Feast. Uh, David Feast created Cow and Chicken. Um, Dean Taylor, you remember or know of a Dean Taylor? No. Okay, because he, so he's a future rep, but he'll, he'll be coming out not next week, but the following week. And uh, he was working down in Australia as an artist, and uh, I believe Bill came down there. Is what he? I think that's what he said. 
um, yeah, Bill Hanna came down there and then um, ended up bringing him back over. And that's kind of how he got a split in the door at, at Hanna-Barbera. So I didn't know if that that might have been him um, or not. But I'll ask him when, uh, when we talk in a couple of weeks. Um, but uh, King McDaniel. By the way, the, the Australia people, Bill Hanna went down and he opened the studio down there. Mm -hmm. uh, Hanna-Barbera Studio. Uh, in Australia, and I think the Taft people, I think who were in had bots Anna Barbera, didn't like the idea of Bill having a separate studio down there, and subcontracting work to it from here. So they had to close it up. You know how long it lasted, or how long it was open for? Probably one or two seasons. Yeah. Was that normal for them to put that much money into a studio and then then close it that quickly? Obviously, you got to cut your losses when you got. Not normal. Yeah. Well, I think uh, they thought Bill had a was making uh, profits by sending his own work to his own studio. Gotcha. And that was a problem with them. Um, it's too bad because it was a good studio, evidently. Yeah, that, that story came up with Dean. That's how he met um, Bill when he came down there because he was working at the studio or he was a part of either trying to get a job at the studio or he was working at the studio and him and Bill kind of hit it off and, you know, they would talk whenever they would come into town and he was kind of the guy that... Dean may come in. I think Dean maybe came up when I was leaving the studio, retiring or working at home in 92. Mm -hmm. So if Dean came up, after 92, then I wouldn't have met him. Okay. Um, King McDaniel wants to know, um, how did the process of layout and character design go about at Hanna-Barbera? How short was the schedule on average to get those done? Obviously, we said we had to you know, outsource quite a bit. Um, but do you remember how, how long the schedule really took? Well, we had to turn out a new Scooby every week. Wow. Which is a lot. Yes. And so that's why we had to divide it up and doing three pictures at a time in layout. So that um, we could make at least the one of them complete each week. Um, I had another thought, but it escaped me. Oh, I, when we began to get busy, before that, when we only had a few shows, each layout man had to design their own incidental characters mm -hmm. that were in a picture, not just the main characters, but the cop, the housewife, the bad guy. Maybe the bad guy might have been designed by somebody, but the incidentals were designed by the layout man. Mm -hmm. And that got to be a problem when we got busy with a lot of shows. So I... Uh, I, I asked the studio to open up a, a character design department that nothing but new characters. That's that they did that. She, Jane Barbera said, yes, go ahead and do that. And uh, that proved to, uh, that we could handle a lot more shows because of that. Mm -hmm. We had, I, I think at one point I had 15 designers designing all the new characters and doing model sheets and doing paste up and uh, it worked. We, we, we could handle more work that way. 
Yeah. Divide and conquer is what they say. Um, we got a couple yeah. questions here from Cameron and Cameron's one of the most thoughtful people when he comes up with questions. Cause a lot of people ask, and this is not a disparaging remark to anybody that writes in. Cause I appreciate every fan's questions that when they write in um, because you guys are listening to these and I appreciate it. you can listen to any other podcast, but you're choosing to listen to mine. So like I said, that's not a disparaging remark against anybody that writes in. Um, but he, he puts a lot of thought behind these questions and he's one of my favorite people whenever I see pop up. Um, so he's got two or three here um, and we'll go one by one. But his first one, are there any goals you still want to accomplish? No. Uh, I know, I am doing something new now. Yeah, what are you doing new? It's, um, you know, I've done a lot of commission work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Scooby and Flintstone and Jetson. And uh, I have an agent I've had since 98. Mm -hmm. And uh, she she uh, has a partner, and they decided to make limited editions of a lot of my work. Okay. This this only happened this year. So uh, already we have like twenty five designs being produced, printed. I think we're making ten copies of each to see if they'll sell. Okay. If they sell, then we'll go into a lot more than that, maybe a hundred of the ones that are popular. So that is new. So I'll be signing uh, them as they sell. And uh, I'm at a mouse con in Bakersfield uh, on the 30th of January, and we'll be uh, showing those new drawings, new limiteds to the public and see how they sell. Now, is so it, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, that's it. That, then uh, we'll see if uh, people are requesting drawings of mine, like a head of a character or whatever. They can order it, and I'll go home and do them, and we'll send it to them probably. Beautiful. Um, is there a website that the fans can can go, or do they contact your agents through uh, anything in particular? I can give you my agent's phone number okay. and. Um, her email number, if anybody wants to contact her. I have given her about 45 or 50 pencil drawings. Okay. Whenever I do a limited or, or a commission, usually uh, I will keep the pencil. Mm -hmm. And uh, people want evidently want the pencils as well as the color. Mm -hmm. So um, I can tell you her uh, name is uh, Michelle Smart, okay. Michelle with two L's. And you can get her by emailing michelle at michellespart.com. Okay, and I'll put that, I'll put or that in the link. Uh, her phone number would be 323-2300. Um, three, three, is her phone number. Okay. All right, and we'll also put those uh, links in the description for the video so people can go and then email her or give her a call uh, if they want to buy something that uh, old Bob has written on. Um, so thank you for, for that, because I know there's, like I said, there's a lot of fans that really enjoy it. Like I said, I was not expecting that many people. So whenever I post anything that any of my guests coming on asking for fans questions, right, 
depending on who it is, I'm expecting a lot or a little bit. It just, it really depends on who it is with, mm-hmm. with you in particular, like your career was so vast that your career has touched so many people's lives. So I was expecting quite a bit of response from this, but to just put it into perspective a little bit. I was not expecting my, like I literally had to take my phone right? And throw it across the room because it kept lighting up. It kept lighting up. It kept lighting up. As soon as I posted the picture and said, I was talking to you, I had to get rid of my phone. It just would not shut up. There was so many people out there that just wanted to pick your brain or wanted to see or wanted to hear your thoughts and, and, and just listen to your career. And it, it blew me away. Like I was expecting a lot, but I was not expecting that much, like to the point where for a few hours I had to go on the other side of the house because I was tired of hearing my phone ding, ding, ding. Even when I had it turned off, like the vibration was, so it was, it annoyed. And it sounds like I'm, I'm being an asshole here, but it, it, it was annoying. Right. Cause I was like, Oh my God, what is going on? Like I thought somebody you know got sick or somebody, something had happened. Um, so I look at it and it's just, everybody wants a piece of bomb. They want to buy your artwork. They want to see what you're doing. They want to give you some well wishes. They want to tell you, thank you, how much you meant to them growing up, you know? So I, I love to get to do this part of the interviews and the talks because you said it before, like you guys were just doing your job, right? You were clocking in, clocking out. Everybody has a job. So when you look at it, you can't, I don't want to say you couldn't appreciate what you did, but you guys were so busy during that, that, that era, that peak, you guys were pumping out shows left and right and pumping out episodes left and right. So you didn't get to really appreciate it as much as you can. Now you look back and reflect on what you did and how many lives of of these fans that you've changed. So I loved seeing this much fan interaction specifically for you, man. It really made my day to, to know that you touched so many people's lives. So. I'm gratified to hear that. I have a feeling that when I went on Facebook, a year or two years ago and putting on my work on Facebook, mm-hmm. I think I have a feeling that's when people begin to see it. And that probably would lead to what you're talking about. Yeah. In fact, it was, it was easy to find it because mm-hmm. I've got over a hundred drawings on Facebook. Yeah. It's one of my, it, whenever, um, and I know we talked about them a little bit before and you, you, you guys didn't really have their paths crossed, but Robert Alvarez does the same thing. Like he'll post cells that he's gotten, um, you know, whether it was a gift from somebody or him and his friend, Tim, one of my favorite stories, him and his friend, Tim would go to the Hanna-Barbera studios when they were little kids. And mm-hmm. then they would go into the, the dumpsters and stuff and get cells or get drawings because most of the stuff was just thrown away from, you know, from UPA to, to Hanna-Barbera because nobody had the foresight to really keep this type of stuff with the exception of Disney. Nobody really thought that this stuff kind of mattered to, to fans and stuff. And he had this story. And I think it was, I think it was, um, I think it was Bill. Um, it came out with either a tire iron or a golf club and chased him and Tim off of the dumpsters. And then the next time they came out, they had a bar over it with a lock because him and, you know, him and Tim were just getting into the dumpsters, getting any cells, any kind of drawings that they could possibly get. So I really enjoy seeing you guys share your artwork and the, and the stuff that you did in your career it really it brings a smile on my face. So uh, we already uh, asked Devin's question. Um, now we did talk about, you know, not too much uh, interaction with the voice actors, but you might've with as hot and heavy as you guys were on uh, Scooby-Doo, you might've had some interactions, but Bri wants to know, do you have any cool stories of uh, Don Messick's or Dawes Butler? 
Um, you'll have to repeat that, okay. Julian, because you froze up. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Beautiful. Uh, Bri wants to know, do you have any cool stories of uh, Don Messick's or Dawes Butler? No, I never met them. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I just don't have anything on those two. Okay. Um, Drew wants to know, uh, did you ever have any issues with network censoring during the productions of some of the cartoons you worked on? Do you guys have any kickback from the, the network censors that you can remember? Um, I think um, the networks were upset in the beginning um, with uh, shows that were too violent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Johnny Quest was pretty violent. Um, that's, that's what brought Scooby-Doo forward. Fred Silverman of CBS decided we can't we can't do this anymore. People are are writing us, and they they don't like all the violent stories. Mm -hmm. So uh, he uh, he knew that uh, there were some TV shows with live action with kids uh, solving mysteries. So he thought, hey, why don't we do a cartoon with that? And just four kids um, solving mysteries, driving around just like this live action show. And it was Silverman's idea to put a dog in. Really? The, the Scooby was not supposed to be the main dog. Um, but uh, that's that all of a sudden it was recognized that he was the, uh, the uh, lead character. But that, the reason is formed was because of that problem that Fred was having with his, with people complaining about violence. And even Johnny Quest, when it was uh, <clears throat> created, there was no dog in there. Mm -hmm. And I think Joe Libero said, let's put a little dog in there for humor, you know, because it's a very serious show. There wasn't much humor in Johnny Quest. And they thought they should lighten it up. So, um, Dick Bickenback was the one who designed Bandit for Johnny Quest. Yeah, he was a great addition, man. I, I, yeah. I really enjoyed Johnny Quest. So that balanced out the show, and it really made it work. Beautiful. It's a, uh, you know, a relief from all these strong stuff. Mm -hmm. but, but Scooby led to a lot of other shows with the same kind of format. Mm -hmm. uh, Clue Club and just a bunch of others did that. Okay, another question. Yes, sir. Uh, 47 cartoon guy, cartoon guy excuse me. Uh, he didn't have a question. He just wants to tell you, you were one of my favorite Hanna-Barbera artists next to Ed Benedict, uh, Jeremy, was it Jerry Eisenberg's, uh, and Takamoto. So he just wanted to give his thanks because he, he really enjoyed your work. Uh, Larry. Ed Benedict, excuse me. Oh, go ahead. Ed Benedict, I met him in, uh, I think it was in Carmel or on the West Coast, I went to see him. And he was the one who designed Flintstone in the beginning, mm -hmm. the background styling and the characters. Of course, they went through a lot of changes until they finally finished up. Iwo Takamoto, I think, did the final drawings of uh, Flintstones. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, um, 
Jerry Eisenberg and uh, Iwo Takamoto were the among the top uh, artists along with Homer Jonas, Mo Golub, who did wonderful realistic drawing and animals. So we had a very, really talented crew there. Yes. Big had a, an assistant, Jack um, Huber, helped him do the uh, layout on Flintstones. So, and we had the best animators. Um, when you get the best people, you have good product. Yeah, 100%. I can't agree with you more. You guys had the best animators, in my opinion, of all time. Um, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of fans that will echo that same sentiment. <clears throat> Larry, my buddy Larry, one of my oldest friends here, and he, he does all the editing for our uh, for our podcast. So we can't do 90% of what I do. I couldn't do it without Larry. So Larry, I appreciate you. Um, but he wants to know, <clears throat> was there a scene during your career that you struggled animating the most? And if so, why? Well, I've been drawing Scooby. It was very difficult for me. Mm -hmm until I drew him a lot. But I had to use all the poses that Ewell made um, until I finally learned how to draw him. Um, that was the most difficult, yeah. Yeah. A right. uh, couple more here. Um, oh, uh, here's another one uh, that wasn't a question, but uh, Gene Ham wants to know, he was a student of yours. Uh, or he doesn't want to know, he wants to tell you, excuse me. Uh, took classes from you in Hanna-Barbera. You were a great teacher. I first learned the rules of silhouettes from you. So Gene Ham was given his thanks. Um, Thomas wants to know, why didn't Hanna-Barbera Productions do more feature films that would rival other studios? Well, Joe always wanted to do feature films, but it turned out to be probably too expensive. Um, that may be the reason money, money, yeah, That's generally, generally what it all comes down to. And uh, we've got one they took a lot, um, it just took a long time to make a feature, and that took animators, layout people away from the, the shorts people. So, probably was not a good idea to do more than one or two of them, okay. And then uh, this is the last one. It's no, uh, not so much um, a, a question, but it is a thanks. Do you remember an Ed Baker? I don't think so, no. Okay. Um, so he's got a he, – he sent me this on Twitter, and uh, I just wanted to read it to you because, like I said, this um, – this podcast is about giving people their roses. You know, so there's so many people that are not here that I can't tell. Thank you. I can't tell. I appreciate everything you guys did for me as a kid. Um, so whenever I get the chance to have one of you guys and gals on that I've had on, I want to make sure that you guys know before you leave here, how, how, how much you guys touched our lives. Right. So um, whenever I can get somebody in that's had, you know, firsthand experience with my guests or knows my guests or just, is a fan of my guests and they can tell their story. I, I like to tell them that. Um, so Ed Baker, he wanted me to tell you in fall of 1990, I moved to LA from Iowa and was soon introduced to Mr. To Bob. Uh, Mr. Singer had no idea who I was, but gave me a tour of the old Hanna-Barbera building. 
He was bored with movie episodes and invited me to the office every week or so to go over my drawings and help me get up to speed to hopefully break into animation. I met with him regularly into early spring of 91 when he arranged for myself to interview with the directors on Tiny Toon Adventures. I owe my now 30-year career in animation and two Emmys for storyboards to Mr. Singer. And I want to thank him again for teaching me so many things and for being endlessly gracious with his time back then in that hallway trailer behind Hanna-Barbera. Sincerely, Ed Baker. Um, yeah, so he wanted me to tell you that story and how much he appreciates. If it wasn't for you, he, he doesn't think he'd be in animation. So, Well, I, I appreciate that. Uh, probably I knew him as Ed. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've forgotten his last name, but yeah. uh, it's very gratifying to hear. I'm, I'm happy I was able to be of help. I enjoy a lot teaching because um, I've done a lot of different things, boarding, layout, character design, background painting. I've done all of that. And uh, I get a lot of pleasure out of teaching it to somebody else. So my work with Ed was very gratifying because he seemed to be a very good student. Well, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate all the fans that have written in. Obviously, we can't get to all the fans' questions because there was a bunch. And I don't want to keep Bob for too much long. I'm pretty sure you got some more important things. You're probably going to go dance and go have a nice dinner. You're going to go do something fun when you get off here with me, man. So, uh, like I said, I appreciate you taking the time for me today. And I can't wait to do this again. I can't wait for part two. And, well, like I said, we could do damn near – 52 62 parts just on your life and, and what you've done and, and where you're going and where you've been so like i said i appreciate your time spending here with me uh, mr Sanger. and like i told you when we started man legend just does not it doesn't seem like it's a big enough word for you and your career and what you've done in this industry so i appreciate all the hard work and all the many hours all i can all i can say is thank you for, for asking me and i enjoy this very much and i'll do it again with you beautiful um, is there anything you'd like to, to to tell the fans? This is this is your time to to really say anything you want to say before we wrap up. Uh, is there anything that obviously we're talking about the um, the the prints that you're doing and if they sell really well and they, uh, at the end of the month at the what was the convention again? It was the mouse the mouse con mouse con I'll do show you some uh, of the limiteds if you have time. Oh, I've got all the time in the world for you. Here's one. That is beautiful. And uh, here's another one. <laughs> that is phenomenal. And so I've got a bunch more, but we can look at them another time. Beautiful. I'm going to, uh, as soon as we wrap, I want to tell you a Scooby-Doo story real quick. It won't take longer than 30 seconds, but I think you'll get sure. out of it. Um, but uh no better way to wrap this up than he's been Bob. I've been Julian. This has been the What's in My Head podcast, and this has been another piece, and it was a huge piece of your childhood. Good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's in My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.